pain runs through families until someone recognizes it. And you know, the best thing you can do for, for future generations is to sort your shit uh, and to not pass the, the toxins on. Yeah. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 26 of My Way. This is part two of a conversation I had with seasoned Graytonian Carol Gibbs. If you haven't listened to part one, you'll want to go back and do that first. In this episode, we talk more about her experience writing her first book, All Things Bright and Broken. Just a disclaimer, we discuss physical abuse in all its forms, so just a warning if that's a trigger for you. Carol Gibbs will be one of the authors at the French Hook Literary Festival the 17th through the 19th of May, so mark your calendars for that if you're in the area. And as I said in the previous episode, talking with Carol is an adventure, so find a comfortable spot, close your eyes, and enjoy! I read about this experiment in the New Scientist or something. Two labyrinths, food in the middle, two rat cages, two rats. They injected one with adrenaline. They put them in the cages. The rat with the adrenaline found the food in half the time and found it again and again, much faster than the one without the adrenaline. The experiment is trying to prove that children who, are, who live on adrenaline have wonderful memories. And in the back of the book, I thank my brother for his phenomenal memory. He's unbelievable. Our little house was here. If I ask him about the neighbours, he won't only tell me the children's names and the mother and father, tell me what the occupation was of the father. Of all the people, he's 80, going to be 83. He is amazing. But my love of, of, of history and being creative is not difficult to work out because as soon as I could cross that road, I used to make a beeline for the art gallery because in those days you were safe. And I used to stand and gaze up at these huge paintings and I just loved that courtyard. There was a little courtyard with a pond mm. with lilies and I just loved the calm and the peace. Mm -hmm. I think that was part of my escape um, was the museum. I just loved that museum. Well, yeah, that's what, like, the bright moments in your life gave you fuel to deal with what was to come. Because you have to escape. You could set your watch by it in many ways. Like, it's things are going to turn tragic now, again, because this is how it works in an abusive home. And if you can find the good and find the bright moments, then you'll, you'll have enough. They sustain you. Yeah. You don't have any extra fuel. You just, it's like you're li in your head, you're living sort of energetically paycheck to paycheck <laughs> you know you make the money on the good moments and then you spend the money on the tragic moments I do a lot of self-talking mm. uh, it's difficult to understand that in my age I still have to do self-talking mm -hmm. but it really does help and I found one particular book the man's name is John Bradshaw and the book is coming home I, it was given to me by a life coach, and I find that book helped me so much. Mm -hmm. You know, you can try and escape all the stuff happening to you by having this false self. It'll get you at some stage. 
And I remember the, there's a book on the market. It's by Dr. Susan Forward, who's a psychologist. And the title of the book is Toxic Parents. And the very word made me guilty. I saw that book in Johannesburg in 1994, I think. I saw it on the bookshop and I, I stood like this. I resisted it because I felt so guilty that I was going to examine my toxic parents. never saw my mother as toxic and I stepped away from it. I was in a junk shop in Somerset West and it jumped out at me again and I thought I have to read this book. So those two books, if there's anyone out there who is battling with because it is a battle. Those two books helped me unbelievably. Well, I guess it, may, it makes me think too about, you know, how, how much abuse is very likely happening right in this village. That drives um, me nuts. That's why I can be a fundraiser for animal welfare, but I don't have the emotional strength to deal with anything yeah. like that. I think a lot of people don't, and I think there are a lot of people who say like, I don't understand how these people are so worried about the welfare of animals, and yet, what about the what about the kids, and what about the the women, and the, and the children? What about people? What about our own kind? I said because it's much easier to separate yourself when it comes to animals. When you start dealing with your own kind, it gets very heavy, and you bring your own stuff in, and my heart breaks in six million trillion pieces with those mm -hmm. children. I almost I feel guilty having lived through it, not doing anything about it. But speaking of abuse, I remember what I was going to tell you, and this is what I want this book to do from the beginning. It was painful writing it, but I wanted to write it because there is light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. It sounds impossible when you're going through it, and no one wants a child to go through that. I don't wish it on my worst enemy. But I want people to recognize and to take the mask off. Because the longer you keep the mask on, the longer you're fooling yourself, the longer you're going to be searching for happiness and peace. Mm. So I've always wished that. And I was in Johannesburg at the Kingsmead Book Fair. I was part of the Kingsmead Book Fair. And you can imagine, I've never, sp I've never really spoken publicly, particularly not about the book. So there I am at the Kingsmead Book Fair. I'm in the green room with all the other authors. My gosh, Charles Poe, all the authors. And it's 12 o'clock and I've got half an hour to go before being mic'd up. And the thought pops into my head. If only I could have a glass of wine. And like an angel, this woman comes walking through the door with a tray and a bottle of wine. And I'm thinking... God does answer prayers. <laughs> and she set it down on the table. And I, I thought, I don't believe this. And I, I was really very, just poured myself a glass of wine like that. And I have a photograph of myself on my page with this yeah. glass of wine. Yeah. And it just settled me. I don't yeah. care what anyone says, but that just, I mean, I, I wouldn't have more than that, but it did settle me. Yeah. So here I arrive in this auditorium, with just a sea of faces. And I'm on stage, and I'm mic'd up. And on my left, I have two authors, both second books, both won awards. They're writing serious stuff. Slavery in the Cape. And we have Mr. Kamala, who's written four books, who's interviewing us. He asked this lady to my left, and where did you do your research? Oh, first of all, I thought, how do I crack this audience? I've got to connect with them. So when he introduced me, I stood up. 
and in this magnificent garment, I went like this, and I said, take a good look, I'm the oldest author at the Kingsby Book Fair. <laughs> and they all clapped, and I thought, good, I've broken through. <laughs> so, she tells him she's done hers at the Congress of whatever in New York, and this one has been to wherever, and I thought, what do I do? So once again, I stood up with that little picture I did of the doll's house. Mm. I picked it up and I said, this is where I did my research. I said, this is the doll's house. You'll find it in my book. I parked my car outside and let the memories wash over me. That mm. was my research. I sat down. <laughs> it was tough. So he asked me about the motivation for the book. And I said, I wrote the book to try and understand myself and what made me tick and my family. And then I said, something that I'd read here on my tablet about pain running through families mm. and I said pain runs through families until someone recognizes it and you know the best thing you can do for for future generations is to sort your shit uh, and to not pass the, the toxins on yeah. uh, so I was telling him that anyway we came to the I somehow managed my way through this and I did connect with the audience and the very first book I signed was a gentleman and he came up to me with tears in his eyes. And he he had the book open on the page he wanted me to sign. And I've never signed a book in my life before and he had it open on that page. So I signed for him because that's where he wanted it. And he said to me, you're so connected with me. I'm having such problems with my family at the moment and I'm in such pain. Mm. And he introduced me to his wife and I carried some of my cards from my paintings in my bag and I gave them to her. And they were absolutely thrilled and off they went. The second book I ever signed was a young lady with a nose ring. She was very bristly. And she said, will you sign my book? And I said, yes, of course. And I opened it on this page and she said, you'll never sign on that page. Okay. <laughs> she said, you never sign on that page. You sign on this page. Okay. So I obliged. And she said, I'm writing, you know. And I said, that's fantastic. Everyone should write their story. Are you writing your story? And she said, yes, but it's very painful. So I said, I'm sorry to hear that. She said, I've been raped. It just came out like that. Second book I've ever signed. And so my book is doing its job. And I think, too, the more that you share and the more you crack yourself open, the more people you're going to touch and connect with. Whereas if you just half crack, you're going to connect with some people, but not as many people as you could if you just completely break yourself open for others to see. I think the biggest thing is, too, is sexual abuse. And I felt like in the book, there's all these men, known, sort of known, or unknown, who come in and treat women of all ages, little girls up to women, like property. And it, I am shocked at how common it is. Shocked. And still to this day, it's, it's happening all the time. I think it's happening far more today because of the breakdown of morals mm -hmm. and respect. It's, it's, it's awful to watch, but it's always been there. And I think that predators know which are the vulnerable ones. But of course, sexual abuse, it's not the physical thing. It's the emotional scars that are left. That's the worst. Okay, so wh what do you think are your best qualities? My best qualities? Perseverance. Mm. 
perseverance. No such word as can't. Mm. I'm going to be a sculptress. I'm going to be a sculptress because I know I can do it. I've done that. Mm. First one, I can do another and another and another. But I get bored with... I know how to do that now. So now I want to do a figure of a person next. So I think perseverance is really my biggest one. I've done lots of things in my life. What happened to me is a house and a shop trying to come to Grayton, put the house and the shop on the market, the shop sold first, income gone, and I thought, what now? Launched at the Good Hope Centre when it was still the prime before the CCT Convention Centre, it was there. Launched there, Victorian photography business. I did the artwork, I did the sign writing, styled it like an old Victorian photo booth. I, ha I didn't have any of this. Didn't have bucks to just order. An old velvet skirt and snipped it up the back and used a bullet clip because it fits everyone, <laughs> you know. And I loved that business because you were eyeball to eyeball with a guy and he didn't want to do this. His wife nagged and he didn't want to do it. And I had to put his bow tie and look in his eyes. I loved it. I loved the the psychology of the families and how they all reacted and I just loved that. It was grand. Talk about how Grayton came into your life. Do you know, I had a friend named Hilary. I lived in Hot Bay. My, my first chopper opened in Hot Bay in 1976. And she had friends who were working on a vegetable farm with those big cooling rooms. And she always talked about Grayton and I always wanted to come. And that shop, the Wandle Street shop, Michelle had a friend named Solvay. And Solvay worked for SFW. And she had a colleague who had a cottage in Grayton in Vine Lane. Sabe said, I'm taking my daughter to Grayton for the weekend. I don't want to come along. A bit lonely, you know, just with a kid, some adult company. Someone to help me have a glass of wine at night. So off we went. And I'll never forget, Willie Nelson played in that BMW all the way to Grayton. I'll never forget it. And arrived here in the pitch dark in a cottage that always has a beautiful wisteria. Second from the last, heading for Queen Street up Vine Lane on the left. Got a, two black garage doors mm -hmm. and then a gate and then the house juts out like I don't know if you know it. Mm -hmm. That house. It had no electricity. It was magic. Woke up in the morning and walked down Vine Lane and I thought and you must try and picture what Vine Lane looked like I then. I know, I wish. And I how few houses there were. Mm -hmm. And when I got almost to the top on the left, there was Vierda's barn. You will break your heart if I show you a picture of that barn. It is no longer recognizable. The pigeons were wheeling around that barn and they'd just done the furrows. They'd just ploughed. It was achingly beautiful. And we were headed for... Where Chaos lives now was, was the Indraf Cafe. Oh. We were heading to buy the burger because our shop, the Wandle Street shop, was in the burger that weekend. And so we bought ten. You know, you give your yeah. kid one and your mum one and whatever. And I, I just couldn't settle. I got back to Cape Town and came and looked at this property. The agent, there was only one agent, Barbara Shaw, and she showed me lots of things I couldn't afford. The brief was something that nobody wants. <laughs> this was it. And what it was, it was the only semi in Grayton, because what happened is that building that David Kayers is in, if you look at it from the back, you'll see a row of windows, those were dormitories. That was the boys' boarding school. When it was full, 
they took half of this building, this hall, yeah. okay, and put a floor in and used the downstairs room, just one room, as an annex to the boys' boarding school. So in the backyard, you will find three little toilets, long drops, that belong to the boarding school. So, this property was then subdivided, and if you stand in High Street and look up here, you can see a row of trees down the middle. That was the boundary. Mm. Okay, what this consisted of, this was a garage. The kitchen that we were in was one room, and that was it. There's a bathroom, which the bathroom that's the bathroom now wasn't linked to this. It was an outside room where the Indraf Cafe stored their Coke crates. And if you look in the bathroom, you can actually see the lines where the crates where the crates lined up when they oh, wow. shifted them. You can see the lines. There was no water, no electricity. Bathing was done at the campsite or in a in a little red basin by candlelight because there was no Water was collected in Coke bottles from the tap behind the Indra. And this was 1986, not 1886. 1986, Because <laughs> yeah. it sounds so... It was a different country. Yeah. And you know, it was 75% Afrikaans, 25% English. That's why the first shop that Michelle and I opened in Grayton, we named it the Smothwinkel in Afrikaans. So as not to alienate the Afrikaners and the coloured folk. It means the peddler's shop in English, mm. but it was dismasswinkle. Teeth were brushed outside. It's a basin mounted outside with cold water. Showers were eventually taken in one of the long drops with cold water in May. Wow. You know, it was the biggest adventure of my life. And you know, I can't stand complainers. Work with what you've got. Be in the moment and get on with it. My mm. son's mantra is, get over it and get on with it. Yeah. Isn't that, it's so good. It's just Very refreshing. Or as Branson says, screw it and just do it. So that that's the way we lived. And then the that little house there belonged to uh, Mrs. Van Deventer. She had nine children and one tooth in her head. <laughs> and <laughs> you could look from the back door of this property into her back door. In the winter, earlier in the winter than in the summer, she could light her lamps. And I would see her lighting her lamps. That's the picture I have in my head of these lamps burning in the winter. And my other early memory is Mrs. Krunewald. She's the principal at the school. And the mother had the tea, the tea, the tea room called the Indraf Kafir, which means the jog-in. And my lasting memory is her saying, when she locked that cafe every night, come fluffy on hand bed too. The dog's name was Fluffy, and she'd say, come on, Fluffy, we're going to bed. You could set your watch by that. And her husband was quite a character. We eventually put the fence up, and you'd wait for it. When you reversed the car out of the garage, which was you'd wait for it because he thumped the fence. And he used to wear a white safari suit and a cigarette holder. And where the grocer is now was Tinky's garage, and roughly where the aisle is with the biscuits was the inspection tank for cars. You know, they drive it over and you go into the pit, and look up the underneath of the car. And the story goes that he was standing in his white safari suit with a cigarette holder. And um, Tinky introduced him to someone and without thinking he stepped across the pit and fell in. <laughs> oh, the bean characters. Then there was an estate agent, ex-Rhodesian. And he would take you out to look at property or if he gave you a lift, 
you would park the car and flip the glove box, uh-huh. and out would come the sherry and two little glasses. Oh my gosh. The characters in this village were unbelievable. Do you know it was a dumping ground for social welfare cases? Did you know that? No. The rental was so affordable, the social welfare department used to say to people, you'll be able to afford. There was Mr. Vitri, the Italian, who lived on the main road in the house where Anne lives. You know Anne who lost her husband? There's always a blue chair on the stoop. It looks so Greek. Yeah. He had a hook for a hang. Just like Captain Hook. I kid you not. When I think about the way the village is growing, mm. when I can't sleep, I don't count sheep. I actually lie in bed and count the new houses in Oak Street after I arrived. And you cannot believe it. If you multiply it by two cars and two people, only two people, yeah. you can see how this village has grown. So it was an incredibly different village. The man next door, I remember walking up High Street on a Saturday afternoon and I could hear the Buddha music. Da, 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 da. And what were they doing? They were dancing around the kitchen table the way my parents did. And you know, when the old people like me who have been here for 32 years, 33 years, talk about the old Grayton, People who've been here 10 years don't know what we're talking about. It's just, it was magic. It was magic. Thanks for listening. And join me next time for the final part of my journey with Carol. In the last episode, she reads one of my favorite passages from her book. So you won't want to miss that. All Things Bright and Broken is available at exclusive books or on Amazon. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with the podcast. See you next time.